Welcome to Sitka Tells Tales, airing live on KCW Sitka. Not too shabby. I'm your host, Ellen Frankenstein, like the monster. The theme tonight is Swimming Upstream, Tales from the Heart of the Tongass. We are so excited to celebrate Earth Week with True Tales Told Live in collaboration with Sitka Conservation Society and to do it here at Harbor Mountain Brewery. And we're broadcasting live at the same time. <laughs> and we're here in Klinkanani, the ancestral homelands of the Klingit people with respect and gratitude for this place and the people who have lived here since time immemorial. We're gonna share six true tales told live. We'll be hearing tales of wild foods, running, fishing, lessons learned, encounters, and living together with the land on the Tongass National Forest. Tellers for this episode of Sitka Tales Tales are Edith Johnson, Robin Neely, Zach LaPerrier, Bargavi Pochi, John Skeel, and Kevin O'Hanland. I'm so appreciative of everyone who has made this evening possible. Let's welcome our first teller. Born in Sitka, this Klingit chef has brought indigenous flavors with new twists to Sitka's food scene. Edith has worked for professional sports teams, including the Seahawks and the St. Louis Cardinals and the Rams. As the owner of Our Town Catering, her goal is to keep expanding, to keep supporting the community she fiercely loves. Edith was recently recognized as one of the top 40 under 40 in Alaska. <laughs> now, if you don't know, that's a group of outstanding young professionals in the state. She's so honored to be part of this place as a special as Sitka with so many talented community members. Come on down, Edith. Thank you, Ellen. <laughs> um, of course, I have to be first. <laughs> Super nervous. Um, so I guess I'll just start from the beginning. I am a Sitka girl, born but not raised. Lived here for part of my life till about third grade and then um, moved to Salt Lake City, Utah. Lived in Salt Lake City, Utah till I was about 17 and decided to move back to Sitka halfway through my senior year, which as you can imagine as a senior in high school, that's like the most tragic thing that could happen. So I moved back and Decided that Sitka High wasn't quite the right environment for me, so I am actually a Pacific High graduate and proud of it, 2004. Don't date me. <laughs> I'm 36 now, I can't believe it. So, yeah, I just kind of threw myself in, and it was definitely, I made a lot of mistakes when I was younger, and grew from those mistakes, as we all should. Uh, I would consider myself a late bloomer. I actually didn't attend college until I was 24, so I had a lot of finding me time. I ended up moving to St. Louis, Missouri uh, with a boy. <laughs> um, I dated a coastie, and he got stationed in St. Louis, and so we moved to the boondocks middle of the country. Never 
had gone that far, like deep into the Midwest. Um, it's very interesting. And so my heart was actually set on going to auto mechanics schools because I had taken uh, quite a lot of auto mechanics classes in high school. I actually did um, my internship in a car garage and I was building an engine for an SS Chevelle as my senior project. Um, <laughs> but then there was no car mechanic school anywhere near where we had moved in St. Louis, but there was a culinary school about 10 minutes away from my house. So I said, I guess I'm going to culinary school. So I pulled into the parking lot, signed up, and, and that was that. I've been cooking for about 12 years professionally now. Got my associate's degree in culinary arts, and that profession started me off with professional sports teams. So I ran the second most expensive all-inclusive club within Bush Stadium, and then I was also the catering chef for CenturyLink Field. Yes, I got to meet the players, and they eat a lot of chicken. <laughs> so that was like a really cool thing, but then I had my daughter, and so, you know, you, you live in sick, and the only thing you want to do is get the heck out. You're like, I'm off this island. It's way too much. I'm bigger than this island. But when you have kids, you want to move back because this place is amazing to raise a family. So I did. I moved back, got a job at the Flying Fish Inn. When it was the Flying Fish Inn, now it's the Long Liner. I worked there for about three years. And that is kind of where my connection for indigenous food started. We were one of the only like small restaurant establishments that did seasonal menus. So everything we had on that menu was sourced from the state of Alaska. Um, and that's when I kind of fell down into like the rabbit hole for wild foods and meeting the wild people that pick the wild foods. And that's kind of what I had based my business on was sourcing foods from the land that I grew up in, the land that I love so much. And I'm also a board member on the Sika Conservation Society. Um, I absolutely, <laughs> yeah, we want to protect our Tongass and we want to protect our food sources. And here I am, and my daughter is now nine. I've been, uh, this is my fifth year owning Our Town Catering, and I started it, and hopefully five more years, <laughs> at least. <laughs> but why do I love being here? It's pretty obvious, not to mention I just got back from Goddard today, so my like love for Sitka is like through the charts. We were the only ones out there with utter perfection. Of course, there were whales and you know eagles dipping into the ocean as we were soaking in the hot tub. So, I mean, you can't really get much better than that. But, I mean, I love Sitka, I mean, the people. You just can't get better than the people, the talent the love, the community, the embrace of cultures and how we're just this beautiful melting pot of humans. Like I'm looking around right now and I'm just like getting a little teary-eyed because <laughs> we're all so amazing and it's such a cool community to live in. And so, yeah, I think my time is up. <laughs> Thank you, Edith. Now we're going to go to storyteller number two. If you're listening on the radio, this is Sitka Tells Tales. And our next teller is Robin Neely, born in Kansas, came to Alaska in the 90s, been coming back ever since. She loves it here. Sitka is her hometown, and she gives me lots of advice on chickens.
Hi, everybody. Like Edith, my heart is pounding. Okay. I'm Robin. I've been living here in Sitka Solid since 2012, so about 10 years. But I've been coming here since the 90s, since somewhere around my 20s. The details aren't that important. And I'm going to tell you about the first time I came to Sitka and what made me fall in love with the Tongass. I found the true heart of the Tongass. So, I got here in a barely functional VW van, driving up from Kansas on the Alcan, down from Skagway on the Alaska Marine Highway, and arrived in Sitka because the boy I was with had a friend here. <laughs> and so, since he had a friend here, we had a friend here, and since she was a person here, we had dozens of friends here. I arrived friendful. So the first thing I did after getting off the ferry and driving someplace, it was all kind of a blur. I was agog. Please understand that from Kansas to here, every single thing that I looked at was the most amazing thing I had ever seen in my life. <laughs> the eagles, they were like 400, 500 yards away. There's an eagle, you know, driving up the Alcan. There's waterfalls all along the road, everything agog completely agog. So I got to Sitka, I thought I had maybe like filled up that feeling of awe, not even close. We get here in my life full of friends and the first thing we're gonna do is go on an adventure into the woods and have a fire. The details are murky, I'm along for the ride. I don't know what we're doing, but I have people I trust, I've known them hours. <laughs> and we're going into the woods and we're gonna have a fire, I assume everything is going to be fine. I'm just doing what I'm told. We get to a river. The river is full of fish that are the size of my leg. I've never seen fish bigger than, you know, I mean, you used to go fishing. Down south, if you go fishing, you catch a, a pint-sized fish, and it's dinner. No, leg-sized fish in the water. Backs of them, they're like the whole river. You could walk across them. We didn't walk across them, but I was given instructions. The first part of this adventure involved Please know this is 20 years ago. I know better now. Pretty sure we're past the statute of limitations. But what I was told to do as a new person in my job is to get into the water and chase the fish towards my friend who was standing over there with a big stick. And I would chase the fish towards the man with the stick and then he would take the stick and swing it like a golf club and fling the fish onto the shore. After two or three forays of this, we got two or three largish fish onto the shore. Somebody gathered them up, and we wandered all away into the woods with our, now I know, ill-gotten fish from the river. We get to a place, we build a fire. The details of that are unclear. Somebody produces some tinfoil. Somebody produces some rice. Somebody puts the fish into the tinfoil and puts the rice on top of the fish and wraps it up in some big green leaves and tucks it away and time passes. The details again are unclear. They are later, somebody directs me towards the fish, this open piece of tinfoil and there's fish bellies and rice and we are an impoverished people. We are harbor rats and wood rats and uh, van rats in my case. There's not silverware. You just pick up some rice in your fingers and you pick up some fish in your fingers and you put it in your mouth. It's delicious. Hunger might have had something to do with this, but this fish is delicious except for the occasional bite that you get that was super sour. 
this is my admonishment. It's not the reason why you don't eat fish out of the river, but it's a reason you don't eat fish out of the river. <laughs> there were some very sour bites, but there was beer. <laughs> so you just chase the sour bite with some beer and all is well. So that was my first foray into what is my heart, the heart of the Tongass. It fed me, it fed my heart. I'm still friends with those beautiful people that showed me the way to visit the woods. We, all of us, all of us here, but all of those people who helped me uh, learn how to live here have learned better. And so now I fish, you know, like the good old fashioned kind with a net out of the ocean or, you know, whichever ways people with boats can take me upon. I've learned to snag from the riverside. I've learned to, I actually know how to dip net in theory, but I cannot dip net in practice. Fish are very strong. I've been pulled around the ocean on a boat by a fish. You have to just hold on the pole and the boat, and then the fish takes us for a ride. It's glorious. But my heart of the Tonga story is that I got to go deep into the heart of the Tongass, be fed by the Tongass, be fed by my friends, and have felt full ever since. I will never stop living here and loving here. That's Sitka. Let's hear more applause. I'm still extremely stoked to see people in person. Okay, thank you, Robin. Now, we're ready for our third Sitka Tells Tales swimming upstream teller. And here we are live on KCAW and broadcasting from Harbor Mountain Brewery. It's time for Zach LaPerrier. Zach is a woodworker, husband, and dad to three sons who have lived in Sitka for 22 years. Before Sitka, Zach and his wife Jen lived at the old Chatham Cannery, where his story begins. Before that, Zach grew up in Ketchikan. The title of his story is Grandma Gone Wild. The story of an old skiff that carried Zach and his wife into adulthood. Go for it. There's an old saying when looking or wanting to buy a boat that you don't pick the boat. Ultimately, the boat picks you. I'm sure a few of you can relate to that. Starting in uh, the spring of 1999, my wife and I had recently gotten married a few months before, and we'd moved back to my hometown, original hometown of Ketchikan. And probably the first thing we wanted to do was fix up my ancient sailboat and get the heck out of town. So yeah, don't hold it against me that I'm from Ketchikan. So when an opportunity came to uh, go as the caretaker of the remote old Chatham cannery in Sidco Bay on the southeast corner of Chichigoff Island, we jumped on it. There wasn't much time and we had so many things to do. Our sailboat wasn't done, but top of the list, what we needed to do was buy a skiff. So in the back of my mind, I was thinking a 14, maybe a 16 foot Lund, but uh, fate had otherwise. And we ended up looking at a 1963 Crestliner, which 
at that point was 36 years old. A riveted aluminum boat, and it was just a classic boat. If you picture Jackie Kennedy in a Cadillac, and then you morph that Cadillac into a skiff that was 16 feet long, that would be a 16-foot crestliner. So just a classic boat, big flaring bow, high gunnels, coming into the back with some tumble home, just a classic boat, naugahyde seats, wraparound plexiglass uh, windshield, and a fairly new outboard, which was a definite selling feature. So we looked at the boat, and uh, it was on a trailer, the original trailer, I might add, launched the boat and took it out on the water, and it was just a dream of a boat. I, I just was really impressed. I had no idea that we were even going to look at such a high-caliber boat. But there was a little issue when we pulled the boat out and then pulled the plug. There was quite a bit of water, and it's kind of like, hmm. Well, Bill, the owner, said, first time I've ever seen that. <laughs> so uh, $2,500 later, signature, and it was ours. So we didn't think much about the boat other than just getting it to Angoon, which was the nearest town. So fast forward a few weeks later, we'd sailed the 300 miles to... Sidco Bay at the corner of Peril Strait and Chatham Strait. And we ran across on our sailboat to pick up our new boat, which had a tag on there, A-N-G, for Angoon. So uh, we named her Ange right there on the spot. And a couple trips later, back and forth across Chatham Strait, which, you know, it's, it's big water, we brought a bunch of groceries in, and pretty soon, We'd unloaded on the beach there at uh, our caretaker shack and realized, holy smokes, are we ever tired? So we just anchored the boat, didn't even tie it up to the dock, took a nap. A couple hours later, there's a knock on the door, and this cute little angelic seven-year-old says, do you know your boat's like that? And we looked out, and the boat was completely submerged, except for the bow. Yeah. So... There was only one other adult other than myself and Jen for 12 miles, and he happened to be a legal expert who'd argued in front of the Supreme Court, but uh, not much of a mechanic. So I was completely, completely on my own. Well, a couple weeks later, I had the outboard figured out, and I learned that the boat just popped rivets left and right. You know, no small wonder, 36 years old. So... Uh, we got the boat back running and uh, had all sorts of adventures, but one of the things we learned was you just don't go anywhere without a rivet gun, a drill, and a tuba 5200. <laughs> so uh, probably one of the most memorable events happened on our anniversary, January 2nd, 2000, when uh, we'd gone for a short walk on an incoming tide, uh, right at the top of the tide, and I'd probably misread the tide book. I, I can't remember exactly what happened. But we came back to the boat, and all that was in the water was just the stern. And it was January, 20 degrees, blowing northwest. And we kind of had the option of, oh, we could walk 12 miles back, or we could build a fire for 10 or 12 hours and wait for the tide to come in. So we took stock of the situation. And I realized, you know, we got to try to get this boat back into the water. So we got some logs, 
built a tram and as the tide was racing out, the tides are like over 20 feet there, we managed to get the boat up and in a couple of hours we'd probably push the boat a good 20, 30 feet, got into the water and had what was just a perfect anniversary for us. Uh, I, I mean, you can't believe how good it feels to sleep in your own bed when uh, you're thinking about being out there in the snow. So we had all sorts of adventures in that boat, including going around Cruise Off Island with our young toddler, all sorts of great stuff. But when I look back on that boat, I think, you know, that boat raised me. It made me into at least a halfway competent person in my early 20s, built skills. And, you know, that boat made it to uh, 45 years old before uh, it eventually ended up going out to the scrapyard. And, and I have to think about uh, reincarnation, at least of an aluminum boat. And maybe Ange went on to become uh, an airplane, or who knows, maybe the next time you pick up a four-pack here at Harbor Mountain, <laughs> maybe that's Ange. <laughs> have a good one. If I have it right, I think we're halfway through and reminding people that you're tuned into KCAW for Swimming Upstream, an Earth Week collaboration of Sitka Tells Tales with the Sitka Conservation Society. And our next teller, I'm looking right at her. Are you ready? Come on up, Bargavi. Bargavi is a 22-year-old transplant to Sitka. She was born and raised in Miami, a little bit different, and found comfort in the slow life of Sitka. Bargavi currently works as a wilderness guide at Raven's Way and enjoys baking, painting, and swimming in her free time. Tonight, Bargavi will be telling a story about a terrifying bear encounter that taught her more than just about bear safety in Alaska. Give it up. So it's 11 p.m. at night, and I'm biking back from my new job at Ravensway, and it's around mid-fall. And I live on Monastery Street, and for those who don't know, Monastery Street is like very hilly, and you're going up and down and up and down. And so I was biking back, going up and down and up and down, and I was approaching an uphill. I was slowing down, and there's no street lights on this, on this road, so you can't really see much except whatever's illuminated by the moonlight. And as I was slowing down at this uphill, from my left, a dark figure just approaches from the shadows. And I'm like, oh my God, that's a really big dog. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm standing at the top of this uphill and I'm looking down, I'm trying to figure out what breed it is because I've never seen a dog this big before. And I'm standing up there and I'm like, okay. And then within like a minute, 30 seconds or something, I realize I'm not looking at a dog, I'm looking at a really fat bear. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, this is the first time I've ever seen a bear in my life. And I'm from Miami, and I've never had to deal with wildlife before, really, except like crocodiles, but we don't really see that. Um, and so my mind isn't really attuned to like dealing with animals. I mean, the most of the threats that I dealt with growing up was like assaults on trains and like bad driving. 
So I, I was like, okay. And before I came to Sitka, I, as anyone who does before they come to Alaska, I look up YouTube videos on what to do when you see a bear. And so I thought I was super well-versed, but nothing can prepare you for the first time you actually encounter one of these mammals. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh my God, what am I supposed to do? And this animal hasn't seen me yet. I'm around 20 yards away and we're kind of in this weird gray area where I don't know if I should yell or it'll, it'll charge at me or if I should stay silent. I'm not sure. So I'm kind of sitting there. The bear hasn't noticed me yet. And I figure, okay, let me just make some sound. So I start screaming and I'm like, ah! <laughs> and I have my bear spray out and I'm ready. I'm fully like athletic stance and I'm ready. And this bear whips his head around and it is so fat. Like when I tell you it was fat, <laughs> It was ready to sleep for hibernation. <laughs> and it whipped its head around. It sees this weird two-legged creature like screaming out and it starts beelining up the road. And it is so large that its momentum actually forced it to fall over. And, <laughs> and I hear this thump on the ground and I'm like, what is going on? I guess that freaked it out even more. And then it got up and almost like Scooby-Doo, it started like running, but it wasn't going anywhere. And went right up the road. And the best thing that could have possibly happened, it went up my driveway. <laughs> and I'm like, no, what am I supposed to do now? It's around 11.30. I'm tired from work. Adrenaline is making me shake. I'm like, what am I supposed to do? So I figure I can't go to a restaurant to stay warm and I wait it out because it's Sitka and everything closes at 7 p.m. Um, I didn't feel comfortable going up my driveway because there was probably a bear there. And my third option was maybe I can go to someone's house and hang out there until I think it's safe. Um, and growing up in a city, everyone's pretty fearful of each other. Um, I grew up in a town of five million. I <laughs> and I was like... Uh, I was always raised to never go on people's lawns. It was really common to see in the news people getting held at gunpoint on the road because of road rage. So it's like very absurd to me to go into someone's house unannounced at around, uh, around 12 a.m. and telling them, hey, like a bear is about to, is out on the road. But I figured that's my only option. Thankfully, I did have some friends on the street. I was new to Sitka, so I didn't think I knew anyone well enough where I could just walk in at 12 a.m. and say, hey, can I just hang out here? But I didn't really have an option. So I ended up going up Shennett Street, and I knew some of the girls in that house, and I go up their stairs, and thankfully someone is up writing in their room, and I wave uh, my friend down, and I try to explain to her what is going on. And I tell her the story, and I'm shaking, I'm really frightened, and I was really nervous. She was just be like, go home, Bargavi, it's going to be fine. But she was actually really understanding, and she sat with me, and she was like, that's really scary, you're welcome to stay here. And if you need to sleep somewhere, you're welcome on this couch. And that's all I needed to hear in that moment. And so I ended up waiting on the couch for around 30 to 40 minutes. And I texted my roommates as well. I was like, this is what's going on. And they ended up coming out with kitchenware. And they start banging on pots and pans um, to scare this animal away. And so when they texted me, the coast was clear. I was like, all right, this is it. And so I go out with my bike. And I have my bear spray in my hand. I'm playing music on my phone. And I'm screaming. I'm doing what I think I should do. And I walk up, and I'm like really prepared for an animal to come and lunge at me, but nothing happens. And I go on my driveway, and I go into my room, and I fall asleep. 
And after that moment, it was the first time in my life that I had really felt like I had a community. And I think it was more than just, you know, people you can spend time and celebrate with. It was more of, in my time of need, I had someone that would let me just stay on the couch and not get mauled by a bear. So I'm really thankful for Sika for showing me that people do care about you and I do have somewhere to stay at any time of the day. Thank you. Pretty awesome. One more round of applause, because that was a pretty amazing bear star. You know, one of the things we do is we don't just tell the stories. Most of the time, we, we get people together and we talk about the stories and rehearse them and talk about, you know, the story structure. And so it's really fun to see how they come out. And that was awesome, as with all these stories. So our next teller is John Skeel. Yay, John! Here's Captain John, a local fisherman, and he has a title of his stories calling Dumb Luck, Surviving the Early Years. I started out uh, wanting to be one of the greatest outdoorsmen in Alaska, and I turned into one of the greatest indoorsmen. I'm always on the computer. It's never cold or wet at my computer station. So. <laughs> okay, take it away. My story is about being dumb, I guess, uh, ignorant certainly, and maybe a little dumb also because of so much testosterone and, and as a 20-year-old, you know. And I uh, was, was a freshman at Sheldon Jackson College, and my roommate and I were just crazy for hunting and trapping and fishing, and that's why we're here, you know, basically. And so um, Sheldon Jackson had a school skiff, which in this day and age of uh, when the country is run by lawyers, essentially, it's hard to imagine, but we had this skiff that us dumb young men could take out by signing a paper. And we had no life jackets, no charts, no depth sounder, nothing. We'd just wing it. And just all you needed was the ability to uh, run the outboard and the desire to go. So... It was, uh, however, it was not an ideal boat. It was a, a river boat, a flat bottom, <laughs> and about a 20 foot long. I remember it was a smoker craft was the name of the brand, and it had a 20 horse Merc. And that Merc said Thunderbolt Ignition on it. And you'd pull on that thing, and you'd, after maybe 50 pulls, you'd be screaming, Thunderbolt, Thunderbolt. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so anyway, we'd take this thing out, and we had planned this great adventure uh, f for a Christmas break, and we were going to go to Catlian Bay and hunt and trap to our heart's content for two weeks. We had prepared for it for weeks, and we loaded up the skiff, and uh, right before we were going to go, uh, my roommate Greg got a call saying his grandmother back in Ohio had died, and he couldn't go, but his friend uh, Rick, who was just had just come to visit him, was going to go instead. So... Rick, you know, I had no choice. I didn't like the idea. I didn't know who Rick was, but we, we, anyway, we jumped in the boat. I don't remember any problem getting to Catleyann Bay, but when we got to the cabin, we were quite dismayed when we walked in the door. It was uh, raw, uh, unpainted plywood. It was kind of black with smoke and uh, heavy with moisture. I think there was even ice on the inside of the cabin and a very rusty barrel stove, which we, there was some old wire there, and we got the flue together, and we 
tried to start a fire, but this wood was more like rubber. It was, I mean, we tried to break it on our knees and it just bent and then slowly sprung back. So we forced it into the stove and we poured outboard gas on it numerous times and it finally uh, took off and we were fairly comfortable and uh, I had bought a, brought a bottle of rum. So we uh, made a little table out of plywood and we got some cards and and as it, it was uh, started to get dark very early being in winter and uh, we didn't have any light. So uh, I saw a lot of beer bottles outside and decided that I would uh, make lamps out of them. So we had this white gas, uh, Blazo. So we filled all the bottles, about nine as I recall, and made wicks out of cotton, tore strips, and essentially Molotov cocktails. <laughs> and, and we set them all around, lit them, and everything was bright and cheery. And uh, as we started to drink the rum, and somewhere into the evening, uh, we finished the rum. And uh, Rick stood up, and he wasn't as used to drinking as me, or I don't know what, he was a lot drunker than I was. He started to stagger, and he fell against the uh, bunk bed, and that's where one of the Blazo Molotov cocktails were. And it knocked it over, it went on his mummy bag, like five feet out, and it just instantly burst into flames. And we put it out as quickly as we could, but it got through the nylon and into the feathers. And it smelled really, really awful. Our heads were spinning, and I, I blew, I remember I, I, I knew enough to blow out the rest of the lamps, and uh, he got in his bag, and I got in mine, and a little while later, I heard a bad sound above me, and his head appeared, and <laughs> he started to vomit <laughs> right past my face, and I knew enough not to stick my head out there, although I, I knew I needed to, but as soon as he finished, then it was me next. So... Um, Anyway, we woke up, and I, I, thankfully I don't remember what we had to do the next day, but um, we eventually finished the trip, and uh, we headed out, and it was quite windy, quite stormy, actually, and we were in, uh, in all our wisdom, we were, the bay was probably a mile wide, we were right in the middle, we had no life jackets, we were wearing hip boots, because we thought that's what cool hunters and trappers wore, heavy fishermen's hip boots, and big coats, and um, it got windier and windier, and at one point the bow just uh, lifted up, and a gust of wind hit that bow and, and brought us straight up. And I was at the motor, and it threw me back against the motor, and I remember watching Rick grabbing onto the seat and all the uh, stuff starting to fall, and the boat was essentially sinking from the stern. And all of a sudden, this gust came from the other direction, or from the side, and it whipped us around and threw us down, right side up, going back the way we came. And my hand was still on the throttle, and I didn't do anything. I just sat there like nothing had happened, and Rick grabbed a, a bucket and started bailing, and he never said anything either, and we never said anything. <laughs> anyway, we didn't know what to say. It was too incredible that we had survived this, so... We got back to the cabin. We went into the cabin, and by that time, his bag was in real bad shape. And in the morning, I looked at the window, and the sun was streaming in, and he got up, and he had really curly blonde hair. And I looked at him, and I started laughing, because his entire head was filled with feathers. <laughs> and, uh, and he was laughing at me, and uh, I had a beard and big head of hair then, and, uh, and mine was filled with feathers, too. And so. 
we got up and it was a sunny day and it was flat calm and we made it back. So that's my story of survival <laughs> against all odds. <laughs> Thank you, John. That was awesome. Okay, we're gonna hear our last teller for the night. Let her take another sip of her beer and come on up, Kevin. Yeah. Kevin O'Hanlon is originally from the Midwest. Yeah. How many? How many people here are from the Midwest originally? Woo! Me too. Okay, and it's called Sitka Home for the past four years. She works for Raven's Way, and she enjoys cooking, kayaking, exploring new places, and running. Take it away, Kevin. In high school, I was a runner. This was a big part of my identity, my sense of community the biggest thing I cared about, and it's what kept me out of trouble. My senior year track and field sectional meet, I was running the four by 800 meter relay. We were supposed to qualify for state, which we would do by placing first or second, or by running a qualifying time. I was the anchor leg, so it was pouring down rain as I watched each of my teammates run their two laps around the track. Suddenly, I was holding the baton. It was my turn, and I was running as fast as I could because they don't tell you this, but the 800 meter is a race where you just run as fast as you can the whole time, and it's scrappy and it's mean. I was coming around the track for the second time, and I was in second place. I knew the third runner was behind me, and as we rounded onto the final straightaway, I could hear her footsteps behind me, and then I could feel her on my shoulder. I willed my legs to move faster, and I willed her not to pass me, but she passed me. <laughs> Moments later, my legs are giving out, and I am sliding in the rain on my torso across the finish line in third place. My teammates are picking me up and they're clapping me on the back and they're telling me, we qualified, we did it. Uh, we had run a state qualifying time and I had run a four second personal record. And in those minutes, we were on top of the world. This is what we had been working towards all season. This is what I had been working towards for four years and it felt dang good. My coach, Scott, comes over and his face does not match the tone of the moment. <laughs> he gathers us in a circle and he tells us we had been disqualified. Uh, the disqualification was in my leg of the relay and I was called on obstructing that runner in passing me as we were on that final stretch. Like she still passed me. <laughs> <laughs> There were people like my coach and my teammates and the other team's coach and the other team who told me that maybe this wasn't a good call. But it didn't matter because it was the call and I was devastated. This was the end of my season, the end of high school running, and we were heartbroken. For a long time after that, I didn't want to run. And when I finally ran again, I felt this 
big wall of fatigue. I was tired. I felt alone and I didn't feel strong enough. I went to college and I did a lot of things besides running, which is good for me. <laughs> uh, and then I graduated college and I moved to Sitka. And pretty soon after that, I heard about this thing people do in the summer where they run up this big hill and they run along this ridge and then they end in a parking lot. And that sparked something inside of me. <laughs> so soon after that, I found myself at the trailhead of Gavin Hill, wondering how fast I could get up it. I made it about 300 feet above sea level, and then I was dry heaving and felt like I was going to vomit. <laughs> this was the start of a questionable and ongoing interest I have in running up big hills for fun. I enjoyed how engaging it was, and I loved the balance of mental and physical effort. That summer, I ended up with a spot in the Alpine Adventure Run, and I remember feeling anxious, excited, butterflies about running for the first time since I was 17. Unlike a 800-meter high school race, this run wasn't scrappy or mean. I remember feeding off of the support and solidarity of the other runners seeing mountain rescue at each checkpoint, not just making sure I was alive, but also cheering me on, <laughs> and crossing the finish line in stride with an incredible friend who had been my most stable running partner and biggest support in Sitka through that first year. With these elements, I couldn't feel alone. This sense of community is a big reason why I love living here but most days I get off work, I change my shoes, and I find a trail to run alone. I get to run under 500-year-old spruce trees, watch the ecological zones shift as I gain elevation and back down at sea level, wait for the fish to arrive, spawn, die, and decompose. With all of this going on, I'm just not alone. Watching the fish swim upstream, it's easy for me to see this part of their life cycle as hardship. But I know they're doing what they have to do. They're returning home. And when I run, especially when I run up big hills, this is a way I return to myself, return to a sense of community, and just one of the ways I feel at home in this place that I'm so grateful to call my home. What a way to celebrate the Tongass and Earth Week. Thank you, Kevin. And thank you all the tellers. I want to thank Edith, Robin, Zach, Kevin, Fargaby, and John. And thank you all the storytellers for bringing Sitka Tales Tales to life in person and on the radio. Thanks to Harbor Mountain Brewery. And Campfire Pizza for making food, beverage, and the space available to us. And to the Sitka Soup and the Daily Sentinel for helping us get the word out. To our timer, Micah. To our photographer, Caitlin. To Otman for his help. To Adam and Becky who are making this stream and broadcast. And to Dave Emmert who's going to edit our show and get it ready for podcast. 
We also appreciate the support and collaboration with the Sitka Conservation Society. And we want to thank Sitka Salmon Shares for supporting our storytelling work. And I want to give appreciation to all those who have tuned in here on KCW Raven Radio and our live audience. Let's hear a clap for our live audience. Thank you for listening to Sitka Tells Tales, a live storytelling event based in Sitka, Alaska. Tonight's episode was recorded live at Harbor Mountain Brewery in Sitka on April 19th, 2022. You can find more episodes at artchangeinc.org and wherever podcasts are found. Special thanks to Sitka Salmon Shares and the Sitka Conservation Society for helping support this edition of Sitka Tells Tales.